I was begging, please don't do this to me, you know, through my language, through my physical demeanor, begging them to please don't force me into a marriage. And my mother just saw somebody who was not doing what she expected to do and therefore needed to be punished. Jeswinder Sangera was 16 when she decided to run away from her family home to escape a forced marriage. Her choice of freedom didn't come without devastating consequences. Her family disowned her and she has never met them again. However, this traumatic event did not break Jeswinder. She has founded Karma Nirvana, a British charity that supports both men and women affected by honor-based abuse and forced marriages. Today, she is a highly acclaimed international speaker, an expert advisor, and an author of the best-selling memoir, Shame. Hello, this is Indre, and you are listening to the I Bounce Back podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by The Gallery. Based out of New York, The Gallery is a curated collection of photographs from around the world. While we are all unable to travel, this is a great way to bring a piece of the world to you. All prints are made from 100% recycled aluminum, giving your wall that gallery finish. Right now, the gallery is offering our listeners 15% off their purchase by using the code 15 off. Go to thegallery.com. That's T H E G A L R Y. So your wall will never be boring again. This is episode 12. Jeswinder Sangera, no choice but to run away. The first thing to say is that um, forced marriage is not a tradition. It is abuse. It is a criminal offence here in the UK. And thankfully, other countries are also following it and criminalising forced marriage. So what, what victims very often are led to believe by their families is that it is a tradition. It is supported by religion and um, culture and as a young person as you grow up you learn your rights and wrongs from your parents so you end up believing this and if you challenge it actually you understand that you become the outsider you put yourself at risk so by the time you get to the age of 9 10 11 it becomes your norm that you are going to be marrying a stranger but what I understood and I witnessed with my sisters was that very norm. But the, when you try to challenge it, you are actually um, putting yourself at greater danger of being forced into a marriage. So I think the point is that it's not a tradition. It is abuse. It's not supported by culture, religion or tradition. And are things changing? I would say yes, because there is greater awareness now. More people have support in terms of legislation. So we never had law, civil or criminal law. We It became law in the UK in 2013. And there is more awareness nationally and internationally about the issue. Here in the UK, we also have a national helpline within Carmen Nirvana. So 
compared to when I was younger, you didn't have anywhere to go to to talk to any understanding about this. So today, victims can call a helpline and seek a listening ear support, but professionals also can access helplines to seek advice on how to assist those who are at risk. And that's really important. You made a very interesting and uh, important point about uh, the fact that it's not the tradition. Mm -hmm. uh, let's dive in into your story. You faced a prospect of forced marriage when you were just 14 years old, and it wasn't new in your family. Your sisters had to go through the same thing. So were you actually surprised when your parents told you that you were about to get married? I wasn't surprised at all because I lived in the backdrop of witnessing this happen to my sisters. So I knew that my time would be close because my family married us in order of age. When Rabina married, she was the one older than me. It was my turn. I knew that. So I wasn't surprised and the surprise, I think, for me was to learn from the age of 14 that I was promised to this man from the age of eight. So at eight years old, I had already been promised to marry this man in the future, and I had no idea about that until it was presented to me when I was 14 years old. But you said no to your parents, and your parents agreed to wait for a couple of years. Yeah, so I said no. Um, but my mother was very clear, and I, I say my mother because in my personal experience, the key perpetrator in my life was my mother. So female perpetration is something that does happen in this space, and that also included my sisters, who were reinforcing that I, I had to marry this stranger and not shame the family. So my mother was very clear that she was not going to accept the answer no, and that I needed to marry this man and not dishonor this family. And I said, look, I want to go to school. I want to be educated. My mother was very clear in saying that where I was going, there was no need for an education. So albeit, you know, I was allowed to go back to school and the message was very clear. You will still have to marry this man. When my parents took me out of education was when I started to protest more. So, you know, my mother had said this is happening. I went back to school. It went quiet. But then when I got near to the age of 16, and this is when families do marry you off because you can marry at 16 with parental consent in the UK. That was when I protested. I, I, I don't want to marry, you know, I don't want to marry this stranger. And that's when they took me out of education and held me a prisoner in my own home. In Indian culture, and of course, not only Indian, there are so many other cultures where an absolute obedience is what is expected, basically, from children. And it yeah. is very deeply ingrained. But is this obedience based only on respect to the elderly or also on fear? I think um, the way to understand it and the way I can describe it is to say that I grew up within a family where it was... It, it was not abusive, actually, growing up from naught to eight years old. The house was warm, it was clean, we were fed. But we were being taught that there were very big differences between how women behaved and men behaved. So, for example, by the time I was eight years old, I understood that 
you know, we didn't cut our hair because we were told it was our religion. We didn't look at boys or talk to boys because that was shameful. We didn't sit in the presence of men because that was shameful. We didn't answer back because that was dishonorable. So, you know, I saw that through parenting. So by the time I got to 11 and 12, the rules changed. And then through parenting, and then for a young person, you learn it through through your rights and your wrongs. It's through learnt behavior, what you can and can't do. But what we were being taught were things that were rooted in what was acceptable and unacceptable, what was honorable and what was dishonorable. So when you're a teenager, you would hear different messages like you mustn't date, you mustn't, for me, one was you mustn't integrate, that was deemed as dishonorable, you mustn't wear makeup, you mustn't go out with your friends or in today's context, some of the victims talk about how they're not allowed to have a mobile phone or social network so they hide a secret mobile. So you're, you're taught these things but you also understand that if you don't follow the rules then there's going to be a risk. So if I had a secret boyfriend and my mother found out about it, that could be a trigger for a forced marriage or physical abuse or psychological abuse. So you always behaved in a way according to what was honorable. And then what you did, and I certainly did this, is you almost had two lives. You you had a life that the family didn't see and then a life that the family did see that was acceptable. And this is where you hear victims talk about a clash of two cultures or where they go to school and then they go into the girls toilets and put on their makeup and they go to school and then before they go home they take it off because they know they must do that before the family see them. In your book you really accurately compared forced marriage to lambs going to slaughter and every single sister of yours had to go through this terrible experience and your parents and I'm sure other parents who force their daughters into marriages, they see the stress and pain they cause to their own children. So I'm just curious, what is the rationale? Did your parents in your case try to explain why they were forcing you to get married, although you were so strongly against it? You see, I don't think my parents ever saw it as forced marriage. I think they saw this as part of their right, as part of their tradition. My mother would say, I had to be married when I was 15. Why are you any different? So they were only doing what they thought was best. And they were only doing what they um, understood from their own past. So when I say my sister's went to these marriages like lambs to slaughter what I mean by that is they didn't question it because by the time they got to 15 my mother was showing them photographs they were even excited about getting married they didn't show resistance because by then they were conditioned to accept this marriage as part of our norm in our family if that makes sense And this is the condition that I'm talking about. It's almost like grooming. And for me, my mother wouldn't have seen anything in terms of pain other than she would have seen protest. So with me, 
my pain was very clear. You know, I was begging, please don't do this to me, you know, through my language, through my physical demeanor, begging them to please don't let, don't, don't force me into a marriage. And my mother just saw somebody who was, um, not doing what she expected to do and therefore needed to be punished if that makes sense yeah. it's very sad though when you turned 16 you faced a very hard decision to either run away or succumb to the pressure to get married and you decided to run away how yeah. did you make your decision and did you already know that it basically meant to lose all your ties with your family so For me, what triggered me wanting to run away was that I was locked in a room and held a prisoner, and I knew that the only way I could escape was to agree to the marriage, and that would give me some time to plan my escape because I would have some freedom of movement in the house. So I agreed to the marriage, and then I was expected to take part in the planning of a marriage which was a very difficult thing for me because deep down I knew I wasn't going to do this and I was only saying yes in order to leave. I didn't have a time scale of when I was going, but what triggered my escape the next day was the day before I heard my family making plans to book tickets to go to India. And I knew from the past, whenever that happened, my sisters would be on a plane and they would be going. It meant the marriage was imminent. It would be time for you to leave the country. So hearing that, the next day was when I, I ran. And I, I, I ran to make the point that I'm not marrying a stranger. I don't want to get married. And I believed that if I made this point in this way to my family, they would accept it and they would say, okay, she's given us a very clear message now that she doesn't want to get married we will call the marriage off. You can come home and continue school. That's what I believed. And in fact, that's I should say that is what I hoped. That's what I should say. What I never, ever imagined is was my parents' response. My mother, when I rang home because I was reported missing to the police, answered the phone and she spoke on behalf of the family. She was very clear And she gave me a choice, and I still call it a choice even today. And the choice was this. You can have your family and everything you've ever known and the people that you've loved throughout your life, but it means marrying a stranger and conforming to an honor system that clearly oppresses women. That's what it means. Or you can have what actually is your right to be free, to be independent, to be educated, as a woman, but it means you will never have your family again. And that means being disowned. And my mother was completely vitriolic in her response in telling me that I was to her a prostitute. I was to her somebody, if I didn't go back, somebody who would be dead in her eyes. And she hoped that I rolled around in the streets and I would amount to nothing and she was very clear about that so as a 16 year old I had to make a choice and I made the choice and many victims today face this choice and I made the choice not to go back home 
And the way I want people to understand this is it's like me asking you to imagine waking up tomorrow morning and never ever seeing a member of your family ever again and being made to feel it is your fault. Because what my mother told me is what I internalized and began to believe and that was I had done this to my family. I had shamed my family. I had dishonored my family. So I actually began to believe that I was the perpetrator. But it wasn't enough to make me go back. And so they disowned me. And and um, that continued throughout my life. When did uh, your belief change that you were actually a victim, not the perpetrator? For me, the turning point of no longer internalizing the guilt and the shame that I had done this to my family was when Rabina died. Because when she died and I rang home to ask my mother what had happened, because when you're disowned, you don't even get to hear about births or deaths. I mean, I'm talking to you now and I'm 54 years old. None of my family talked to me. I have no idea who is alive and who isn't alive. But I don't have that expectation anymore. But the point is, when Rabina died, somebody told me to ring home because something had happened to my sister and I didn't know what this was. And my mother answering the phone relayed to me that my sister had set herself on fire and she had committed suicide. And I remember hearing that. And immediately I said to my mother, I'm coming, I'm coming right now back to my hometown in Derby. You know, wanting to mourn my sister with my family? And it was my mother's response for me that was the turning point because she made it clear to me that I mustn't come to the house, that I mustn't show my face, that it would be dishonorable for people to see me. She said, but I know you, you will still come, you know, thinking of me as a defiant one. She says, so you can come when it's dark and nobody can see your face. And at that point, I felt this strong sense of, Nothing's going to change. Here I am in my life waiting for my family to accept me, waiting for my family to forgive me. And yet if Rubina's death doesn't make them realize anything, nothing will. And that was the turning point for me when um, it was about, she's not coming back. My sister's dead and nobody feels that loss in the same fact the message was it was better for her to take her life than for her to dishonor her family and divorce her husband and that turning point for me was when i started to own that actually i wasn't wrong i was the victim and you have done this to me and you have done this to rubina a review and then you can share it with the world in any social media platform and then your friends see it and you can share and discover new shows together this is steph instigator of pod rev day podcast review day and i'm andy from inspired money and i'm ariel of earbuds podcast collective and Castbox. we're here to tell you everything you need to know about pod rev day which is on the eighth of every month of every year of every century of every you get it we are posting podcast reviews as part of Hashtag PodRev Day, Podcast Review Day. Because podcasters work their butts off and deserve to know how much they've impacted your lives. And you can do that through reviews. 
even one star feels surprisingly <laughs> good. Does it? It lets you know that people are at least listening. Don't be a passive podcast listener. Write a review and tell your favorite creator what you love about their podcast or about a specific episode. And to participate, you just need to do one review. And we'll see you every eighth of the month. PodRev Day, because podcasters deserve to hear it. Hashtag PodRev Day, P-O-D-R-E-V-D-A-Y. haven't done so yet, write a review or rate the I Bounce Back podcast on any major podcasting platforms. You can find our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher, as well as on the website iBounceBack.net. Today on our podcast, we have Jasvinder Sangera, a British advocate against forced marriages and any honor-based abuse. According to UNICEF, across the globe, levels of child marriage are highest in sub-Saharan Africa, where 35% of young women and girls were married before age 18, followed by South Asia, where nearly 30% were married before age 18. However, forced marriage can happen anywhere, in the United Kingdom included. That's where Jasvinder founded her human rights charity Karma Nirvana. She opened the charity after her sister Robina died by suicide after years of suffering in forced marriage. At that point Jasvinder knew there was no way back to her community and she was no longer afraid of the backlash. I think I'd, I had by then I had lost everything really you know I I for some reason was realized I was living my life on hold waiting for my family to reason with me and then when Rabina died it was as if everything had gone um, and I had this conviction where I didn't care almost you know I didn't allow the challenges to be obstacles. I waited for my both my parents actually to pass away. They died before I started to publicly start sharing my story. I felt a sense of I couldn't do that until they were not here. And I say that because I began to realize and understand and have empathy for my parents because they were only doing what they knew was best. They were only doing this because they wanted and they needed the acceptance of the family and the community, and this community would have disowned them if they had accepted me back. That's not a justification, but that's how it was. So for me, I wasn't thinking about the challenges. I became fiercely a person that was angry, actually, I wanted to change things. This wasn't right. This was an injustice. And so the challenges were there, absolutely. And I fought back and continued to fight back. And then the communities never worked with me. In fact, they slowed me down. And, you know, I was called things and I have had threats and risks. But then I would find people who would work with me. So for every obstacle, I would learn not to walk into it, but to walk around it. So this is where you start to not work with the community who are 
at my time, back in 93 to 97, were in denial. You know, there wasn't the evidence this was happening. I was accused of shaming my family and shaming my community. But then I would come back stronger and, and harder talking about my experience, talking about Rubina. And for me, that was the, that was the fight and the, the conviction and the passion. Your organization has been active uh, for more than 25 years and yeah. it is known internationally. Have you lost count of how many women and girls you helped and saved? Absolutely. Um, and it would be impossible to put a figure on that because, you know, the organization reaches far and wide. I'm talking to you now. And um, for me, in 1993 to 1997, I remember not being able to get more than two people in a room to hear what I had to say. And I remember when I established the helpline in 93 to 97, and not one person called the helpline, but I believed they were there. These these victims were out there. They just didn't know we were here. Then the helpline became a national helpline in 2008 at Carmel Nirvana, which is now funded by government. And in the last 10 years, it's received over 90,000 calls for service. And even then, you know, we noted this abuse is underreported. And then when you look at the number of organizations like police forces, schools, other organizations that are talking about this, that are developing practices, you know that's going to impact on people being supported. So... Yeah, um, we've supported thousands, but there are many more, many more people to reach yet. It's still, to me, hard to believe, like, I don't know, maybe that's not the right word. You, you achieved so much, and it's just hard to believe that nobody reached out from your community to kind of congratulate you for your work. No, I mean, you do what you do because you believe in it. You know, um, and life has two rules as far as I'm concerned. One is never to quit. And number two is always remember rule number one. And, you know, in this space, we, we will work with anyone that wants to work with us. I, I would take anybody's hand to work on this issue. And for those who have not come forward, and I have to say, I've never seen members in my community take a stand against these abuses in the way I would have hoped you know they were always invited to the table the chair was always a vacant chair but I didn't allow them to slow us down so we found another way but I do believe that things are changing and I do believe that even when I hear about calls to the helpline today they you know victims are just like me when I was 16 but also, we are now getting family members, mothers who are ringing the helpline, who say, you know, I don't want my daughter to be forced into a marriage. Can you help me? And that's wonderful to hear that, you know, within the communities, there are those people who are like-minded and they're bravely taking steps to protect their children. Even if they can't do it overtly in their community and speak out, some are doing it silently. And that, that is a, a key change I've seen. In one of the interviews, you have mentioned that it was so painful for you to leave your community that you had to sort of block all the cultural connections that you had. 
what is your relationship with your culture and Indian traditions today? So the, the thing about being disowned at 16 and not expecting it was a place where, well, I had within me a huge void and that void was missing, missing my family, missing my culture, the wonderful things about it, you know, the food, the dress, the parties, the weddings, you know, there's some wonderful things. And every time I saw a family, I would be reminded of that. You know, Diwali is a celebration almost akin to Christmas, I suppose, you know, on the Festival of Light. And then when these things are happening around you, you, you the missing of your family becomes center stage even more. So I had to detach myself from it all because of the pain. It was too painful. And, you know, living in areas where Asian communities existed was painful for me because I would see people with their families and I wouldn't have one. And very often in communities, people will come up to you and say, well, who's, whose daughter are you and who, where's your father from? And, you know, all that reminded me of what was missing in my life. So, yes, I did detach myself from it all to protect myself from that pain and also when I ha when you have children you know that part of your heritage is something that you share with family but I can't give them that because I don't have family so for me I think it's taken time for me to start to embrace that very painful part of my life and I think um no I don't think I know the, the biggest point of when I became engulfed in my heritage again and my culture and the wonderful things about my traditions was when my daughter Natasha married because she married an Indian boy and um, you know he's from a Sikh background and they celebrate their culture their traditions etc and my Aren't daughter wanted what well the thing is for me when when Natasha married I was afraid because what I understand about Asian marriage, from my experience, you don't marry a boy, you marry a family. And that family will look at your family. So for Natasha on her father's side, it was fine. But on her mother's side, she, the other family will see somebody who ran away from home, who married out of caste, who was divorced, and who's a campaigner. So my fear was they may take that out on my daughter, Natasha. And when I met her partner, he was guilty to my shame until proven innocent because I needed to be reassured that this this family would not treat my daughter any differently because her mother was somebody who was regarded by the community as somebody that had shamed, called shame in the community. And thankfully I was wrong because here I met for the first time in my journey a family, and they were an Indian family, who actually did things the right way in that if you look at my son-in-law's grandfather, he came into this country the same time as my father in the late 50s in search of work from India, from the Punjab. The difference was they went to two different cities in, in England. But, but my son-in-law's grandfather raised his children in Leeds, they were born, to be educated, to be independent thinkers, and also to have the right to choose who they wanted to marry. And I'd never experienced that before. So my son-in-law's parents actually had an arranged marriage, and they have a very happy arranged marriage. So when 
it came to him marrying, they gave him the choice and they said, you know, we, we don't mind who you marry as long as you're happy. So he met my daughter. But the, the difficult part for me, I think, was having the big fat Indian wedding. You know, we had about, we had over 300 guests and not one member of my family um, from my side was there to take part in that. And the absence of my family was very real for me because Indian weddings, you carry out all sorts of traditions, you know, the the sisters are meant to do something, the father, the brother. So my friends, they carried out those traditions and they taught me what to do too. And I took myself back to, you know, watching her and uh, Anup, my son-in-law's name is, do their first dance on the dance floor when they were married and she was there in her beautiful sari in red and, you know, all the traditions we'd had for the whole celebrations took almost two weeks and thinking she has this day because of the decision I made when I was 16 years old. It doesn't matter that my family are not there. She's free to make this choice because I gave her that choice in leaving home. You went through incredibly hard but also uplifting journey and you helped so many other women what kept you going when you faced hardships after you left your uh, your family your life wasn't easy at all you didn't start the charity immediately you had to be on your own for quite some time I think I, I, I can't in the first sort of from 16 to 18 years old I described that part of my life as living a life in one room with the curtains closed. It was a dark time. I suffered from depression. I'd attempted to take my life on more than one occasion. You know, the doctors prescribing me with antidepressants. I was missing my family terribly. And for those first couple of years, it, it was as if I was existing but not existing. You feel as if you are a dead person, but you are walking. And people very often can describe this um, who have experienced depression as the feeling of feeling numb, that you are present, but you're not. And actually, people's voices are just voices in the distance. And that's how it felt for the first two years when I left. And then, you know, that space was also a space where I had to survive. And survival meant living you know, clothed, being fed, being warm, having a roof over your head. So going from being homeless in the first few weeks, and I was with Jussie, somebody I ran away from home with, who I was now thrown into this relationship, which I didn't expect that either, because I thought my mother would allow me to go back. So now I have made this bed and I had to lie in it, which is what my mother said. So then being thrown from the innocence of a 16-year-old that was robbed of a childhood actually, to be thrown into the real world and then married and then working. Um, I just became a functional person surviving because that's what you had to do. And I was living in a space where I was trying to better myself, you know, through work, um, through marriage, respectability because then maybe my family might accept me. And that's what I was thinking and feeling and hoping. Um, and I think for me, the turning point, what kept me going for, for not feeling that I was 
constantly this victim and feeling sorry for herself because that's how I felt was when I gave birth to my daughter Natasha I was 19 and a half and all of a sudden it wasn't just about me I had a responsibility I had somebody else that I had to take care of so it shifted things from myself to looking at this child but the trauma was always there I mean I actually um, when Natasha was born for a short while after that I suffered from agoraphobia which is the fear of people so I couldn't leave the house unless Jussie was with me because if people walked towards me I shied away and I was fearful of what could happen to me I'd cover my face I was I had no confidence whatsoever and my children laugh at me sometimes and I say it took me five goes to pass my driving test but if I was to take it today I'd pass it first time but the point is this is that I had no confidence no self-esteem I felt worthless I didn't feel worthy and I was just functioning but I survived because you have to function to be alive I suppose to wake up in the morning was just another day it wasn't a day I looked forward to it was just another day to get through to get to the next day and then when Natasha came it did change because it was about raising a child. I don't know if you agree with that but I think your organization, Karma Nirvana, has also helped you to find yourself and to find the light and shine. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was talking about my time before campaigning, but then as soon as I started to develop the charity, then absolutely it was almost as if I put all my pain um, and the hurt into the charity it was cathartic. It was almost something that saved me, actually, um, because all that loss and hurt and pain I could put into this worthwhile thing to make a difference. And making a difference helped me. You know, it helped me because I didn't want Rubina's death to be in vain. You know, I, I wanted people to understand how wrong that was. But I, it, it shaped me in terms of giving me in helping me actually to find my voice, but so did educating myself because when I went to college, you have to remember, I, I didn't read a book until I was 27 years old. You know, I left school with no qualifications. I didn't believe I was capable of educating myself. But for me, the fact that I did when I was 27 and then I went to university thinking I couldn't do it, the fact that I was doing it was giving me more empowerment, you know, it's true what they say, education is powerful, and I was feeling stronger in my voice, in myself, in my abilities and capabilities through educating myself and through the charity. Absolutely. You have been working with hundreds, if not thousands, of girls and young women around the world. What kind of words do you say to them, or what kind of advice would you give to somebody who is facing a prospect of forced marriage or who has to take this choice to leave their family, what kind of words do you usually say? The first thing I always say is to remind them that they are not alone in this. And I say that because if I was 16 today and somebody spoke to me and understood my experience, or they mirrored me in that they had gone through this too, that could have saved me many years of feeling that I was the perpetrator and I was the bad guy. So the first thing would be to remind them that they are not alone in this experience, that many people go through this, and more importantly, 
many people survive. And I would remind them not to make excuses for the abuse because it is their family, which is what I did. Um, you know, you love your family, I understand that, but that does not give them the right to make you feel worthless, to force you into something you don't want to do and to not honour your feelings because unconditional love is something that I hadn't experienced within my family because it was always conditional. You have to behave like this, then you can have this or be this or do this. Um, and I think I would remind them that this is temporary, you know, in terms of what you're experiencing and that you absolutely have choices. And the choice to be free and independent is a choice that, organizations are here now to help you to achieve that albeit without your family and you can do it and the important thing I would really impress upon them that I didn't realize until later on in my life was when you make that decision to stand up against abuse you're actually changing the future for your children in the future so my children have not inherited that legacy of abuse because of the decision I made when I was 16. I know when you're 16, you're not thinking about your children in the future. But trust me when I say that, because otherwise what happens if you go through with that marriage is it's more likely your children will have to go through that too. And the legacy of abuse just continues and continues. And, you know, I... I have to say that when self-respect takes its rightful place within you, you will not allow yourself to be manipulated by anybody ever again, certainly not in your family. Thank you to Jasvinder Sangera for sharing her inspiring and uplifting story. As in almost every episode, I ask our guests to end the show by completing a few incomplete sentences. This is what Jasvinder had to say. So the first one is, I'm proud of myself for? Honoring how I feel and standing up for what I believe in. One thing I would tell to my younger self is? Be kinder to yourself and remind yourself that this isn't your fault and that you are worthy. My next big challenge is? My next big challenge is to continue making a difference, but on a bigger scale. I know that I achieved what I set out to achieve with Calm Nirvana, but now it's time to do something even bigger, to make a bigger stamp on the world because service is really important and I want to make a bigger difference this time. That's all for today. The new episode of the I Bounce Back podcast will be released on the 9th of September. I started to use pharmaceutical opiates and I started to get them by, by breaking into uh, doctor's offices, medical centers, pharmacies, uh, stealing them from the lab where I was working, the rat lab. So I was really in bad shape. I was really a mess and that just led from one disaster to another. Don't forget to check out our website, iBounceBack.net, where you can find the latest episodes and blog posts. I'll talk to you in two weeks. Stay safe. Bye.